Hey, this is Marshall Latham here. Sorry to barge in at the beginning of this, but I totally forgot to promote the Journey Into Patreon page where you can get lots of early and extra stuff and have access to podcasts that don't even make it here on the main feed. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com slash journeyinto and uh, check out what I have to offer over there. I'd love to have your support. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. The unknown. Mystery. Space. Science. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Journey into... Welcome to journey number 177 of the Journey Into podcast, featuring Backtalk by R.C. Anderson. I'm your guide on this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from base camp in the Treasure Valley. I am so glad to be finally getting this episode out to you, my fellow journeyers, here on the Journey Into Podcast. This is the final and first place winner of the Journey Into Journey writing contest that I did two years ago. And even at that time, I promised that was 2020, in the middle of 2020, when this contest was finished and the winners were announced. And I said, I will that I will get out episodes for the third, second, and first place winners of this contest by the end of 2021. And I was giving myself a year and a half to do that. And I haven't. (laughs) But now I have. It's taken me over two years, but I am finally producing this episode for you, as promised in the, the contest rules for this. Uh, this is a great story. It, it, it really deserved first place in my opinion, and it was a fun but very involved production of this. And I wanted to do it right. I wanted it to sound like another podcast, and we'll get into some of the details of that after we listen to this story. But this is going to be strange. It's going to be like you're. I'm starting a brand new podcast over when this starts up. So don't be... <laughs> Don't be surprised or don't think, hey, what happened? I'm not listening to Journey Into anymore. You are. But it's in the format of another podcast uh, with ads included (laughs) and everything. I can tell you a little bit about R.C. Anderson. Uh, R.C. Anderson works in the engineering field. Hey, a fellow engineer. I I think I remember that. Uh, But he moonlights as a speculation fiction author. As rewarding as the latter is, the former pays the mortgage. I can understand that for sure. He has been published in such places as this here Journey Into podcast. He currently lives in Hillsboro, Oregon. Oh, another Oregonian. Yeah, see, there's so much in common. Uh, he lives in Hillsboro, Oregon with his two cats. Now I have one cat and two dogs, so <laughs> I don't know why... I'm inserting myself in his int- in RC's intro, but uh, sorry about that. So instead of listening to me, let's go ahead and present the story, and then I can talk about it afterwards. And so please come with me, and let's journey into space. This is Hidden in Plain Sight, and I'm your host, Armin Pluto. Join us as we explore the art of design, architecture, and all the mundane things we take for granted, 
and how they became part of our lives. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. You've heard them all your life. Every time you've ever seen a NASA broadcast, ever wondered what those sounds were? Those beeps, boops, and chirps that are always in the audio? Producer Lucy Devlin is here to explain what they are. But that's just a part of the story. This started about six months ago. The other HIPS producers and I were in our conference room discussing new story ideas. And I believe it was you, Armin, who brought up that you had just watched the movie Apollo 13 with your son. Yeah, And I commented about all the beeps that I heard every time the astronauts were speaking to Houston. Those are called Quindar tones, and they're important for space missions. But no one around that table at the time, eating Panda Express, myself included, knew that. So anyway, we decided that doing a show about what they were, how they came about, and why you still hear them, was a good idea for an episode. So far, this is about how 99% of our stories start out, including the Chinese food. Anyway, that weekend, my dad called me just to see how I was doing, and I mentioned the story idea. So he says, oh, I know a guy you should interview. We go to the same doctor. Now, this isn't as weird as it sounds. My dad is a veteran, and he goes to the VA in Texas. And this guy he knows was in both the Air Force and NASA, and worked the comms in mission control way back when, like the same time Kennedy was in office. So your father has a friend who was a perfect fit to interview for this piece. Exactly. So I did all my research on the subject, because like a good prosecutor, a good reporter will never ask a question that they don't already know the answer to. That is sadly true. But in researching this man and the program he was a part of, I uncovered a lot of fascinating and, frankly, slightly disturbing things. That sounds... ominous. But my first goal, at least for the purposes of the show, was to investigate Quindar tones. So I went to Texas to speak with the expert about what they are and why we hear them. I'm Gerald Schroeder, retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and NASA astronaut. I met up with Gerald at his ranch outside of Waco, Texas. He's Jerry to his friends, a tall, soft-spoken Texan, and what I imagine Matthew McConaughey's character from Interstellar might look like if he had been able to retire to a cattle ranch. He's in his 80s, but age hasn't slowed him down at all. I've been carrying it all day. It's about time I used it. Okay. Bob, you're going to want to cord this night? Uh, Roger, we'd like to get... Number one priority would be some black samples. So why are they called Quindar Tones? Quindar Electronics was the company that made the audio sensors we used on the craft. Since they invented them, they got uh, naming rights. Those sounds are configured so that our communication devices will detect and switch from the audio signal to the system's monitoring and control signal and back again. I asked Gerald why they went with this system instead of something different. It turns out the government had a good reason. The government is cheap. It's a little more nuanced than that. Long before I arrived, some scientists decided it was a good idea to place both control signals and audio signals on the same channel. Since the spacecraft is orbiting the entire planet... Signals from the craft are being beamed down to Earth, mostly at some very inconvenient places. Think Australia, Madagascar, Greenland, places like that. The U.S. was forced to build a whole new globe-spanning network, or wires and towers, on the ground to receive these signals. Now, some of the countries we built infrastructure in didn't even have a national phone system when we started. There was some dollar diplomacy involved in getting a lot of that done. 
At the time, if we had wanted both audio and control signals running simultaneously, we would have had to have built two brand new, very expensive telecom networks from scratch. Quindar allowed us to get away with just one, set up for PTT. PTT, or push to talk, is a method still in use for aircraft and spacecraft today. Think of it like the CB radios truck drivers use. Like the name describes, a button is located on the receiver, and you press it when you want to speak. In the case of spacecraft, though, pushing to talk activates a Quindar tone, which tells the guidance computer, or whatever other system that's receiving or transmitting a signal, to just wait a second, people are talking. When the button is released, a second tone tells the system to allow telemetry and command signals to continue. Gerald knows all of this because he started his career in space not with NASA, but with the Air Force Space Program, specifically serving as a CAPCOM. So what is a CAPCOM? It stands for Capsule Communicator. You're the single point of contact on the ground for the crew in space. They set it up that way in order to minimize misunderstandings and confusion between the module and mission control. Normally, and as in Gerald's case, the Capcom is another astronaut, one who's trained with the crew and has fostered a rapport. There's also a very practical reason why a Capcom is used. If 20 different people with 20 different voices were on the line asking questions or giving directions, it'd be absolute chaos for the boys up there. With everything being sent and received on a single channel, it begs the question, what happens if another signal bleeds into the channel you're using? That's what we call backtalk. It's a phenomenon that would happen sometimes but usually went away quickly. Gerald seemed to get a bit more apprehensive with my follow-up question. So, I know from declassified records that in 1969 you experienced a backtalk phenomenon. Could you please share some of your experience from that? Hmm. You want to know about the Mole Man, don't you? Today on the show, we started by exploring a technology that made space travel possible and ended up investigating a mystery hidden for almost 50 years. All that after this. Building an online presence can feel daunting. I remember when we started this podcast, we had no idea what we were doing, but the first step is just getting started. And with Rhombus Room, it's easy. Stand out from the crowd with Rhombus Room's best-in-class website templates and eye-catching email campaigns. Rhombus Room also has everything you need to start selling online, complete with powerful analytics and marketing tools. Go to rhombusroom.com hidden for a free trial. And when you are ready to launch, use the discount code hidden to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's rhombusroom.com hidden and use the code hidden. What have you got under your mattress? Make sure you use a firm, non-spring foundation or a bed frame with slats that are less than 4 inches apart to ensure proper support. Friendly Ghost Mattress. Size matters. All of their mattresses come in six standard sizes and fit regular sheets. Queen and King are the most popular picks and California King is great for taller sleepers. Friendly Ghost Mattress. Are you hot in bed? Sleeping hot is a common issue. That's why they made winter controls available in their Crest and Phoenix hybrid mattresses. Now you can sleep cool for 12 plus hours. Friendly Ghost Mattress. Check out and relax. After you buy your mattress online, they'll ship it for free. If you're not in love, they have a 100-night trial. They will pick it up and give you a full refund after the 30-night adjustment period. Friendly Ghost Mattress. Don't forget, they also have pillows and glow lights for your bedtime routine. Go today to FriendlyGhostMattress.com slash hidden to get your 22% discount. That's FriendlyGhostMattress.com slash hidden. The Mole Men Gerald mentioned refers to the crew of MOL-2, which was the second manned observation laboratory mission which was launched in 1969. We'll get to that in a moment. But first a quick history of instances of the backtalk phenomenon. 
Lucy Devlin continues. Instances of backtalk weren't normal, but they did happen from time to time. Before mobile communication technology was advanced enough to be something we would consider commonplace in our lives, think of cell phones, cell towers, communication satellites. Before any of that, people had radios, ham radios. The ham in ham radios derives from an early 20th century insult that professional wireless telegraph operators used to describe the wildcat radio enthusiast. The pros labeled these guys as ham-fisted with their techniques, which means they probably thought these amateurs were polluting the airwaves and not following the unwritten rules of the industry. Can't really blame them too much. This was years before the FCC was even thought of. By the start of the U.S. space program, there were still thousands of ham radio operators across the globe. Occasionally, these operators may have been on the wrong frequency or had too much power boosting their transmitter, which would sometimes result in a signal bleed effect, cutting into the ground transmissions to the spacecraft. These instances were what would become the backtalk phenomenon. Mostly, these interruptions were simply minor annoyances, although occasionally had humorous results. Here's a recording of one from Skylab in 1978, the signal is estimated to have originated from a Japanese fishing vessel in the North Pacific. The operator is expressing frustration at his life of catching tuna. Another one is from an Apollo 10 recording in 1969, coming from presumably what is now the United Arab Emirates. He is expressing frustration of his life as a camel herder. Apollo 10, Houston, uh, sounds like we're ready for a naval drill on the flight deck. And here's your horoscope waiting for today, Apollo 10. Tom Stafford. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. I'll say, 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 and uh, Gino, your horoscope reads, give careful thought to your working and driving habits. Do something nice for your friends. And finally, an instance from the Space Shuttle Columbia in 1982 over New Zealand. It's self-explanatory for English speakers. I've been looking forward to uh, landing in Edwards a couple days from now. And uh, unless you got some questions, Hank, I guess that does it. That was a good time, and I think you must have practiced. We're just about to lose your golf talk. Sheep, sheep, sheep. All day my life is sheep. Anymore and I'll kill myself. Huh. I need a friend. Who knew there were so many lonely guys on the radio, and that they all hated their jobs? However, the backtalk phenomenon that affected Gerald Schroeder and the MOL2 mission doesn't seem to have been a ham radio mishap it was something more unexplainable. Before we get to that, here's a brief history of the MOL program, or Manned Observation Laboratory, which should be noted was only declassified in 2015. The U.S. was in a race with the Soviets. This wasn't a NASA space race where we were trying to see who could get to the moon first. The MOL program was military and had intelligence applications. The program utilized a variant on the Gemini capsule, the Gemini B. Biggest difference from the original was that there was a hatch in the bottom heat shield that the men could use as an access way to the rest of the station. The module itself was mounted onto the top of the station, like it was a rocket final stage that had never bothered to detach. The station or laboratory, as it was called, was a cylinder about as long as a semi-truck trailer. 
It housed all the payload and mission equipment, and stored all the food, water, and power to supply two men for about a month. At the end of the mission, the capsule would detach with the crew and fall back to Earth. For all intents and purposes, this was the first manned space station ever built. Which begs another question. Why did the military want a space station in the first place? The primary goal was observation. We would have eyes in the sky on everything the Soviets did. Every tank column deployed, every base being built, every sub launched at sea. The secondary goal was one that wasn't talked about in the diplomatic circles, the potential for manipulation. This involved the spacesuits? Yeah. They were developed for that. A side note here. Part of what led to the MOL program being declassified was when a trunk containing a spacesuit from a then-unknown program was discovered at the Cape Canaveral Launch Complex in 2005. An investigation was launched, one that ended up revealing the program's existence. Surprisingly, the suit included documentation for attachment to an unknown extravehicular maneuvering unit. This meant the astronauts aboard the MOL would have the ability to exit the craft and maneuver in outer space. The reason you would need men to leave the craft was to apprehend and modify, or sabotage, an enemy satellite. Whoa, he's describing counterintelligence in space. Spycraft in space. Exactly, Armin. Aren't you glad I didn't just focus on the beeps and boops story? I'll say. This was the Cold War, and as we know, American intelligence agencies did many earthbound variations on these kinds of clandestine actions. Listeners can check out our HIPS episode 183, Giant Claw Machine, about the CIA exploits with the ill-fated Glomar Explorer during this same era. This story would be interesting enough already, but here's where it gets really weird. Like, weird tales weird. While MOL-1 was just a test flight, partly to see if the hatch in the heat shield would burn off during re-entry, MOL-2's mission was supposed to have a 30-day duration and be the first in a series of manned missions for the program. But MOL-2 ended only two and a half days after it started, due to an instance of backtalk, one that would destroy the lives of the two crewmen aboard. It's something that still hasn't been explained to this day. This strange story will continue in a moment. Rich is a safe and simple customer from Iowa. A few weeks ago, he fell asleep while chalupas were still in the oven. This could have been disastrous. Thousands of dollars of damage to his kitchen or house or even worse. Luckily, Rich has a comprehensive safe and simple system equipped with everything to prevent break-ins and smoke detectors to detect fires. He was startled awake to the sound of a 95 decibel alarm from his safe and simple base station and soon received a call from safe and simple monitoring professionals to make sure that everything was okay. Rich believes that safe and simple probably saved his life that night. That's why 4 million people use and love safe and simple. It's less than a dollar a day takes only about 30 minutes to get up and running, and it's very simple to use. You can feel safe and secure by going to safenysimple.com slash hidden. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off of your best home security at safenysimple.com slash hidden. You want a clean and healthy mouth, right? But the only time you remember I need a new toothbrush is first thing in the morning or last thing before bed. Nine times out of ten, it slips off your grocery list completely. The American Dental Association recommends replacing at least every three months. Toothbrush Me solves the toothbrush replacement problem. With a signature two-piece design that keeps cost and waste to a minimum, they ship six fresh new brushes for your whole family direct to your home. Then they send you an automated reminder to replace your brush every other month. Toothbrush Me's design uses sustainable materials and minimizes the waste of toothbrush replacement. Their handle is lifetime guaranteed, meaning they want you to keep it forever. They will even send you a new one free of charge if yours is lost or damaged. Your handle is dishwasher safe, and should you ever have to discard it, 100% recyclable. 
Toothbrush Me heads, the only piece you'll ever throw out, are made of PLA, a compostable plant-based polymer. Toothbrush Me spent years sourcing the most eco-friendly material at the most family-friendly price, and it's dirt cheap. They are committed to prices so low you can sign up your whole family with no need to ever worry about your bank account. No trial periods. No hidden fees. All sets come with no extra shipping. Check it out at toothbrushme.com and use the promo code HIDDEN. Louie and Marty were good guys. You could always depend on them. Louie didn't have a mean bone in his body, and Marty's only fault was his taste in women. I probably would have made him my best man at my wedding if... It just makes what happened all the more tragic. The Louis and Marty that Gerald just described were Louis Vance and Martin Gibson, the astronauts flying aboard the MOL-2 spacecraft. So how does the backtalk phenomenon fit into the failure of the MOL-2 mission? It would be better if I just let you listen to what was recorded. We were able to obtain the original flight audio data recordings for this story, It took a while to process them from the original reel-to-reel tape, but here, for the first time, the public can listen to what happened. The audio of the incident starts with astronauts Louis Vance and Marty Gibson in conversation. Gerald Schroeder, acting as Capcom, can be heard soon after, informing them that they are about to go out of radio range. Also of note... Because this was a classified Air Force mission and not a NASA mission, the astronauts could expect that their conversations would remain off the public record. So they spoke with more candor about personal subjects than, say, the Apollo astronauts, who could expect their conversations to be transcribed in the New York Times. It starts with Martin complaining about his wife. Which, according to Gerald, who knew the couple, Marty had a taste for wild women. Susie, she was a real crazy lady, threatened to set his car on fire if he came home late, and meant it. That kind of crazy. So after that first play, I told her, I believe you enjoy this aggravation, because that's all I ever get from you. (laughs) So what did she do after that? She threw the other plate she was holding. I finally decided I didn't need to go into the kitchen and get a drink that badly. (laughs) You should get Sinatra to write a love song about you two. So then I scream at her, Woman, you were born to drive me crazy. I can't take it anymore from you. No. No more. Mission Control to Mole 2. Do you copy? You'll be lucky if your house is still standing when you get back. Copy, Mission Control. This is Mole 2, reading you loud and clear. Mode 2, be advised. Craft is reaching the edge of ground transmission range. Return telemetry will resume communication in T-minus 14 minutes. Roger, Mission Control. We'll provide status report when back in range. Over. MOL 2, Mission Control, over and out. About a minute of silence followed. But then... A mysterious sound can be heard, starting to bleed into the radio signal. Mission control, if available, need radio check. Getting back talk on the line. The sound increases in volume. It's hard to describe, but maybe sounds like a cross between machinery, an orchestral choir, and animals baying in pain. This continues for another few minutes. The crew becomes noticeably distressed. Check the high gain. Something's gotta be off. This isn't right. Maybe it's a solar flare. No, it's coming from below. It's thousands of miles of empty ocean down there. We know that at this point, 
MOL2 was east of South Africa, at an empty point between that continent and Antarctica. The unnerving sound becomes louder and louder. Mission Control! Jerry, help! Mission Control? Someone, please! After this point, there's no audio. The MOL2 recorder was still functioning, but the next 10 minutes, 45 seconds, was redacted from the original DAT log. In July of 2015, the National Reconnaissance Office declassified over 800 files and photos from the MOL program, which is where we received the materials for this episode. After numerous Freedom of Information requests, the NRO has insisted that since the files were sealed for almost 50 years, the gap in the log must have come from before the files were archived. Which brings us back to Gerald Schroeder. I played him a copy of the audio log during our interview. What you just played me, a lot of it is what we heard in Mission Control. I still remember it. At a certain point, after where we should have been able to, we couldn't respond because of the backtalk. It must have been jamming us or something. We could hear them, even if they couldn't hear us. We knew something was very wrong. On that tape, Marty was asking for me personally. He said, Jerry, which was a breach of protocol, meaning something had gotten to him. Something that had made him shake off years of training. My next question led to a very unexpected revelation. So what do you think was in the missing audio from the mission? I know what was on it. Everything was picked up on the capsule's internal recorder. That was one of the first things we analyzed when they got back. We clipped it out of the record for security reasons. The first assumption was that it might have been Soviet in nature. That turned out to be false. It was... something else. Really? Uh, would you please share what it was that... No. No. It's better not to know. But it's been so long, and there's so many questions about... Gerald, who had been so calm and collected in our interview up until that point became visibly distressed after being reminded of what was on the tape. He clutched his arms, clenched his eyes closed, and began to shudder. I was worried that he was having a cardiac event or some other ailment. Gerald, Jerry, are you okay? Do you need me to call a doctor? No, I'll be fine. It's just... It's just some things will never leave you, no matter how much you try to forget them. I can't say what exactly happened to Louis and Marty because I don't know exactly what it was myself. Having heard what they went through while it was happening, the only thing I can speculate is imagine being locked in a coffin with every fear and nightmare you've ever had trapped in there with you, and the only thing you know for certain is that there's no way out. Gerald refused to answer any more questions about the missing audio. Without his first-hand knowledge, we're left to where the transmission resumes. Mission Control to MOL-2. MOL-2, do you copy? MOL-2, do you copy? MOL-2, what is your situation? Please respond. Silence greeted Mission Control, but the slight crackle of static indicated that the comm channel was open from the spacecraft. Then, sounds started to emerge. It appeared to be Louis Vance sobbing uncontrollably, and Martin Gibson ranting incoherently. <laughs> Oh, oh, 
Oh God. Oh God. Traveling. Stretches and carries. And causes a shell of which to be rendered. Oh. Oh. It wants in. Oh. I can hear it. No, 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 no. wants in. It's outside, clawing at the door. <laughs> this ends the audio log from the MOL-2 spacecraft. The comm channel was closed, and Mission Control assumed control of the ship, cutting the 30-day mission short. The Gemini B capsule was detached from the observation module and splashed down near Ascension Island in the South Atlantic on June 3, 1969. Both crewmen were medically evaluated and were initially diagnosed as having suffered severe distress and other unknown ailments attributed to their sojourn in space. After the crew's debriefing, Louis Vance was found to be psychologically unfit to return for active duty. He was later apprehended by police for acting belligerent and committed to a psychiatric hospital in his home state of Pennsylvania. He committed suicide later that year, using a loose mattress spring. Martin Gibson was in better shape, but soon washed out of the program as well. His marriage fell apart, and he relocated to a vacation home he had in South Carolina. Gerald went to go see his friend, not long after he was out of the program. Marty wasn't doing too well after he was let go. Him and his wife separated, which basically meant she kicked him out of their house in Charleston. He didn't have anywhere else to go, so he ended up at a patch of land on the South Fork River that in better times he had called a hunting lodge. It was just an old airstream on blocks, sitting slightly above the swamp. I went out there to see how he was doing. I hadn't spoken to him since debriefing. Brought a six-pack and some fishing rods because I thought I could cheer him up. But when I saw him, it looked like he was wasting away. Like he probably hadn't been eating or taking a bath in quite a while. So we sat outside staring at the river. I opened up two beers. Don't even think he touched his. I tried talking to him about life after the program, about his wife, and about what happened. Nothing seemed to get through. It's like he wasn't all present. It was like only a small part of him knew I was even there. He would nod along, but he kept mumbling about the sound. Something about not being able to hear the sound. This is late August in the deep south, so sitting outside with all the cicadas, you can't hear much of anything. The sun started going down, so I was about ready to pack up and leave. Then, suddenly, he jumps up and starts walking towards the riverbank like he saw something he had to get to. I followed and asked, Marty, what is it? He just looked off with that thousand-yard stare and said, I think I can hear it now. And I swear this happened, but all the bugs, all the birds, even the river, everything went totally silent dead silent hear your heart beat in your chest silent something about that was unnatural and felt very wrong I grabbed his arm and I tried to pull him back to the trailer but he just shook me off it felt like he was communing with something so I I left him there by the river and ran back to my car and drove away. I don't know all of what happened after that. The police later questioned me because 
Not long after I left, he just vanished. Gerald would be the last person to ever see his friend Martin Gibson, who has been missing since that August night almost 50 years ago. According to official government records, both Louis Vance and Martin Gibson would posthumously be diagnosed with an acute form of space madness. Space madness was, and still is, a real, if mostly theoretical, consideration for NASA missions. An estimated trigger is thought to be the existential isolation and feelings of remoteness an astronaut can experience— by being separated from the closest human being with thousands of miles of empty vacuum. The only single-manned missions the U.S. has ever launched were the Mercury program, and the original seven were only in orbit for less than a day. The Gemini program was the start of a policy of having more than one astronaut aboard a craft, a buddy system, acting as a last line of insurance against one of the members becoming incapacitated or succumbing to this existential dread. However, this policy evidently didn't help the crew of the MOL-2. A request by us to the Air Force for an explanation concerning the source of the backtalk instance the MOL-2 experienced was returned with only no comment. After the closure of the MOL program, Gerald Schroeder would later transfer to become a NASA astronaut. However, he was always kept in secondary and backup roles for the rest of his career. He would never make it into outer space. Did you ever wish you could have gone up? Yeah. Well, yes and no. I wouldn't have stayed with it so long if I didn't. Humans are natural explorers. Sometimes you search and find wonderful things. Sometimes you search and find terrible things. It's when you don't search that the only thing you find is nothing. Then maybe something ends up finding you. After the failure of the MOL-2 mission, the Manned Observation Laboratory program didn't survive for much longer. It was canceled for a multitude of reasons. America was redirecting its budget for space into the Apollo program and its efforts to reach the moon. Also, reconnaissance satellites had proven themselves to be much more cost-effective at doing the same job as a manned orbital observation post. The ability to manipulate enemy satellites would be an option America would never utilize. The Soviet Union created their own version of the MOL program called ALMAZ, which would launch numerous Salyut stations with the same underlying intentions as the MOL program. But fear of reprisals, potentially resulting in a state of mutually assured sabotage, would keep both governments in a status quo of, don't mess with ours, we won't mess with yours. ALMAZ would end up suffering a similar fate to the MOL and was canceled in the late 70s. The U.S. efforts to build a true manned space station would be redirected to the civilian NASA Skylab program in the mid-70s. Knowledge from that would later be used in the construction of the International Space Station, still orbiting our world to this day. Thus ended a very strange and mostly unknown chapter in America's history in space. Um, not quite, Armin. What do you mean? Is there more? There is another weird twist to this story albeit circumstantial. It involves that spot in the ocean where the MOL-2 first encountered the backtalk phenomenon. That empty place between South Africa and Antarctica? Yeah. So on September 22, 1979, in that very spot, something happened that's been referred to as the Vila incident. The Vila Hotel Satellite, an orbital detector of Earth-based nuclear events, built to ensure that world powers comply with a partial nuclear test ban treaty, recorded a nuclear explosion in that path of nothing. Mm, okay, so who dropped the bomb? That's just it. No one knows. No country or organization has ever claimed responsibility. Theories range from the government of apartheid South Africa or even the state of Israel. 
the Vila Hotel Satellite, and the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty deserve their own episode at a later date. It's just odd that this unexplained incident happens right under where another unexplained incident happened almost 10 years before. There's not enough evidence to directly link the two events, but, and again, this is circumstantial, since the Vila incident, there has never been another recorded case of the backtalk phenomenon originating from that location on Earth. Not from NASA, the European Space Agency, JAXA, Roscosmos, or any other nation that has ever sent missions into orbit. So we started this episode about what the beeps you hear from NASA recordings are, and we stumbled into a secret government space espionage program that ended because of interference from some unknown force or entity, one that ended the careers and lives of two astronauts, a force or entity that has yet to be uncovered, one that may be... Don't say aliens. Giorgio Sokolos on History Channel is wrong. It's never aliens. Something, probably not aliens, that may itself have been destroyed with a nuclear bomb by yet another unknown force or actor. That's about the gist of it. Unfortunately, there are a lot more questions than answers for this story. But in the end, I guess we learned what Quindar tones were. That's a good thing, right? Well, that's something. We copy it down, Eagle. Okay, everybody, hey, T1, stand by T1. Hidden in Plain Sight is produced in association with West Coast Radio Collective. You can find this show and join discussions about it on Facebook and tweet at me at armenpluto at hips.org. Lucy Devlin is our senior producer. Special thanks to the HIPS donors on Patreon who make what we do possible. Produced on Radio Road in beautiful downtown Van Nuys, California. The cast of characters for this story, I believe in order of appearance, are Josh Roseman, playing the part of Armin Pluto, Renee Chambliss, playing the part of Lucy Devlin. Uh, Rish Outfield, as the retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel and NASA astronaut, Gerald Schroeder. (laughs) I don't know why I did that whole title, but I did. A quick cameo by Gino Moretto, as the New Zealand Sheepherder. Big Anklevich, as astronaut Marty Gibson. And I, lovable Real Marshall, as astronaut Lewis Vance. So there you go. There's Backtalk by R.C. Anderson in the form of an episode of the fictitious podcast Hidden in Plain Sight. Before we go too far, let's go ahead and listen to what the author himself had to say about this story. R.C. Anderson says, In a weird way, this story is kind of a big joke. I clearly lay out what the Quindar tones are, and, by virtue of how the system works, the events described in this story couldn't have ever happened, unless the mysterious entity was broadcasting the exact tone to the craft. Unless the mysterious entity was broadcasting the exact tone to the craft, the system, the system would have ignored it. The system would have ignored it like so much other radio garbage. But since, quote, a space mission goes according to plan, unquote, this is about as exciting as unfrosted shredded wheat. I set up a premise, then blatantly ignored it, and made something I hope you find interesting. I did. He goes on to say, The inspiration for this story came from a number of different sources. First, this being the Journey Song contest, I brainstormed a couple of premises based off the four or five songs by the band Journey that I actually knew. When I received my song title, I went, Huh, well that's not Wheel in the Sky or Open Arms. What the hell am I going to do with this? I had never heard 
of the song Backtalk. <laughs> I don't think any of us have. So I was instantly back to scratch. I started looking for inspiration anywhere and even listened to Mike Rose, The Way I Heard It podcast, episode 19, John's Portuguese Cousin. And while it provided an interesting story about the band itself, it didn't help me at all. One of the contest rules required the usage of some of the lyrics, so I started dissecting those. The song Backtalk is about a guy getting frustrated by, quote, his old lady, to quote the 70s parlance. The only way I could figure a dialogue situation like this making sense would be to have two guys commiserating in a semi-modern setting. It was about this time that I had read an article from the automotive blog Jalopnik about Quindar tones, what they were and how they worked. I nerded out on it, but everyone I forwarded the story to responded with something I can only imagine was more akin to a shoulder shrug. Anyway, now I wanted to do something with the Quindar tones, which meant that these two guys were going to be astronauts. It was also about the time that I listened to an episode of the Journey Into podcast. Journey number 42, Skylab, Are You There? Hosted by Rod Serling, starring William Shatner. Can it get any better than that? Yes, it can, because it was hosted by Big Ankovich and Rish Outfield. So that episode was stellar. Uh, that episode was about a crew on Skylab encountering an, an alien intelligence and the radio communication between them and mission control. That setting seemed interesting to me. So I then went to the repository of all knowledge, Wikipedia, and I started researching Skylab. What I found was that the Skylab program succeeded a now declassified Air Force program called MOL, or Manned Observation Laboratory, which seemed to fit my nascent story framework much better. The last factor came from listening to the entertaining and educational podcast, 99% Invisible. I found the format in which they told their stories to be very compelling. They could take an obscure subject, break it down, and explain it in an enjoyable way how something you've never considered before might influence or be part of your daily life. So I set my story in a quasi-parody of one of their shows, in that this would be a transcript of some random episode from a podcast, strikingly similar to 99% Invisible, only it'd be one that you've never heard of because it was hidden in plain sight. Bad pun intended. I knew making it as a transcript was a gamble, because while technically not against the rules, it could be argued to have violated the spirit of the contest. My estimation was that my story would either be decent or instantly disqualified. I was satisfied with the results, and I hope you, the audience, are too. I'd like to thank Marshall, Bria, Big, and Rish and everyone else who did such a great job with my last story on the podcast, episode 147, Journey into IFC, which was another great story by R.C. Anderson. While I don't know who or what Marshall has planned for this one, I have faith it'll be excellent. Thank you all again, R.C. Anderson. Well, thank you, R.C. That, that was a pretty interesting breakdown of how you came up with the story I'm always interested to hear, especially when I come up with the prompt, you know, how, how the, the story, how the prompts that I gave inspire the story. That, that's really interesting. And I really did enjoy your story quite a bit. Um, it's interesting. I didn't, uh, I never thought about disqualifying this story because of its format. Yes, technically it was a transcript or a, or a, like a screenplay or whatever for a podcast, but one of the criteria I was also looking for for these stories was would work well in audio. And so in a way, you might have hacked in to my brain and given yourself a leg up by doing a podcast transcript. Now, I'm not saying that for sure, but, the, you know, one of the one of the things was being able to that it would work well in audio. And obviously a podcast 
podcast script is going to work well in audio. Now, luckily for this contest, I had Gina Moretto and I had Keith Teklitz um, also join me in judging this contest. And they both liked the story as well. It did rank the highest between the three of us. So it wasn't just me giving you out. So yeah, in, in my book, man, these are two knockout stories. I really enjoyed both of your uh, stories and it makes me want to do another contest so that you'll write another one. <laughs> uh, but it took me so long to do this episode that uh, I, I worry about not about doing another contest and then having it sit in quagmire forever produce these episodes. And this one in particular, like I said at the beginning, was I really wanted it to come off really well. And I still don't think I managed to make it as creepy as I wanted to, as the story dictated. It should have been really, really creepy when we're hearing these obscure sounds coming from space, this back talk over and it, and it drove these men uh, crazy, right? So I don't know if I succeeded in that. I, I tried hard. Yeah, I I could spend another year on this, you know, trying to, oh, redo it. Like, try three different times of different ways to do it. I, I have made several different attempts at it. But anyway, yeah, really fun stuff. You know, I, and you know, I, I have to say, I think RC really sold me on this story. I, it felt real. It felt like something that was really going on, you know, and I love the way he laced Real things that, you know, like Quindar tones, that's a real thing. And he pulled that in. And uh, the mole missions was something I didn't know about. But there you go. He pulls that in. So the, all the, the all of these real things and giving us all these facts and history and, and background of it. And then he throws the fiction on top of it. And man, it, it just really pulled me in. Um, I have started listening to 99% Invisible. And uh, it's it's a great podcast. I and in fact, I really tried to catch the spirit and the tone of the podcast. And I asked specifically Josh and Renee to listen to it and try to catch the tone and the the feeling of the podcast. And and they did a great job. I really, um, you know, both Josh and Renee did a great job of of hosting this and and narrating this. And uh, yeah, Renee, man. You're amazing. Thank you. Uh, and uh, Rishi Outfield, of course, did a great job as the retired astronaut. And uh, especially that part toward the end where it's it's his big monologue about him going to talk to, was it Marty? And their encounter, his encounter with him. And I really liked that, how everything kind of slowed down and we were just listening to Gerald tell us this story. Yeah, Rish did a great job too, and then it was it was it was fun to have uh, Big and I as the uh, the astronauts out in space. That that was a lot of fun too, and I was I was so glad to be able to get Gino in there. I mean, it was written for Gino, a New Zealand guy, right? And so that was kind of fun to pull him as as the sheep herder, uh, complaining that he needs more friends. Uh, that was fun. So yeah, overall enjoyable experience uh, reading producing and uh, presenting this out to you. One of the things that you didn't see, because it was hidden in plain sight, of course, was in the script that R.C. sent, he also included pictures of the mole mission and asked different NASA stuff that correlated with the stuff that he was talking about in this. And uh, again, that added so much authenticity to it. Of course, I can't present that on the podcast, because this is all audio, but I, I'm definitely going to use one of his, I haven't figured out which one yet, but one of the graphics that he put in his script uh, for the episode art for this. Uh, so yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. And I, I love stuff like this. I love listening to, now this, I don't know if, if RC knew about this, but in trying to find the audio stuff that I wanted for this episode, there is a weird thing that happened on the Apollo 10 mission, the one just before they landed on the moon. They pretty much did everything that uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin did, except they didn't land on the moon. You know, they, they got in the lunar module, they 
they did all the preparations as if they were going to land and then but they just ended up going around the moon and coming back to earth uh, that was the the last mission before we actually landed and something happened to them they went around the dark side of the moon right and then they started hearing this like they called it music and i i wanted to play part of that as part as in within the the story production itself and i did put a little audio from that mission in there but i um i didn't want to distract from the actual stuff that was going on in the story maybe i'll play a little bit for you uh here I didn't mean to keep it sounds outer spacey, didn't it? You hear that? That whistling sound? Yeah. Woo! Hey, it's your... Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, outer space type music. Yeah, isn't that kind of creepy? That they're hearing this weird music? I'm sure it was some kind of a frequency or something like that. You can't quite hear with the sound that they're hearing. But uh, just the fact that they're hearing something is kind of creepy. And they never talked about it when they got back. I'll tell you, John, that music is really weird. I know it. No one will believe us. It was found in audio files years later. I also listened to, and it's buried within the audio when they're hearing these weird sounds. But Voyager, when it was out and it was going past Saturn... Um, it recorded some strange sounds, frequencies, and I can't remember, they were like plasma waves or something like that. I, I Shoot, I should have looked it up before I started recording. But And I, I watched little uh, clips on YouTube about that, and I'll, I'll put some of those down below. And uh, then also when it was out past our solar system, every once in a while it catches. And so, yeah, you're not going to be able to hear it per se, um, unless you know what you're listening to, because it's buried underneath all the other audio stuff that I have going on when uh, Marty and Lewis are, are hearing the, the strange back talk. Um, but yeah, so this was a lot of fun. I, I'm sorry it took so long. I hope it comes off well that, uh, that I was able to get the same creepy feeling that I hoped for. Um, and that, that, like I said, the story kind of dictates that. Um, yeah, the, this made re, this reminded me, first of all, how much work it is to do good quality, <laughs> full cast uh, sound effect audio, because it is a lot of work. But it also reminded me how fun it is to do it, and to to get the finished product the way you want it. I, still, I, I'm not sure if I got it the way I wanted it, but. Uh, anyway, uh, what else about this story? Oh, the, the other thing in the production, he just, in his script, he just had breaks for the commercials. He said, uh, two, you know, a commercial for this and this. And then a little bit later, he had a commercial for this and this. And so I thought, oh, this will be an opportunity for me to be creative. And I don't know how creative I really was, but I, I created the commercials. And some of them are based on real commercials that you would hear on podcasts today but i changed the names to protect the innocent and then i actually wrote a commercial based on a real product the toothbrush me commercial is all real you can go online to toothbrushme.com and you can sign up for that service that's a real thing and uh, i didn't contact them to say hey can i use your product um, but if if that interests you <laughs> i wrote a commercial for it i wrote a little podcast ad and uh, I'll have to send it when, when I put this out. I'll have to send them an email to let them know that, hey, I, I included a commercial for toothbrushme.com in this story. Let's uh, see, you know, this, it was a long uh, story and I'm probably going on way too much. But I really hope you like this story. Let me know that you appreciate these uh, journeys where it's a, a new story written by someone, you know, a contemporary person. Let me know if you like these contests. I'm tempted to do another one. I have an idea for another one. But again, that just creates more work for me. But it also might inspire me to write another story, which is fun as well. 
yeah so just yeah let me know i i hope you uh enjoyed this story like i've already said and uh, i hope to see you here for more journeys i'll be back with more old time radio and i i am trying to bring more short fiction uh to the journeys as well not just old time radio but but more of this kind of stuff so so yeah once again thanks for coming on this journey with me and with Marcy. and until next time kids stay safe out there and journey on The Journey Into podcast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. This means that you can share it with anybody you would like, but please do not try to sell it or alter the audio, and please give credit to where it came from. The theme music for this podcast has been provided by Man in Space. Man in Space.